As the month of June approaches, our Secretary of Treasury, Dr. Janet Yellen, is repeatedly warning the nation about the potential for the first ever U.S. default. That meeting that I had with her out in Berkeley was in August of 2021. So, she, like you know, so that gives it. She's been worried about this moment uh, for two years now. She's wow, wringing her hands about this. And uh, she really wanted to avert it. And the political forces in Washington are driving her right into it. And it might be the case that she ends up bearing the blame for something that she spent two years trying to avoid. But you use the word compelled, and that certainly is what drove her into the job. She didn't want to do the job when the Biden's emissaries first reached out to her in 2020 uh, after the election. She said, no, she wasn't interested. She was enjoying her retirement. The last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, being a Treasury Secretary is a much different job than being um, a Federal Reserve Chair. Well, again, this relates to people and numbers. Um, she was sitting in a meeting with, a, with with staff economists and they were presenting her forecasts for the economic outlook after the financial crisis and presented her forecasts uh, for a long period of very high unemployment. And she felt complacency in the room. And she she banged the table and she said, these are fucking people. These aren't numbers. This isn't good enough. What we're what we're proposing, you know, the, the policies that we're pursuing, it's not enough. It's not good enough. And we have to figure out how to address this problem. These are not just numbers. They're people. She walked into a White House that she described as being like a men's locker room. It wasn't welcoming. It was crude. Uh, and and not very nice to women. And she certainly sees the inflation that we're experiencing today as a black mark on her record. And I think that uh, she feels compelled to see that get under control before she decides it's time to walk off uh, into the sunset and resume her retirement. Did you know that Alan Greenspan, our former Fed chair, believed price stability meant no inflation at all, meaning he wanted to push inflation down to zero. It was Dr. Yellen who argued that instead of zero, the Fed should pursue an inflation rate of 2% and no lower, because zero inflation was just too darn close to deflation, like in Japan. And plus, as she reasoned, a little inflation helps grease the wheels of our economy. Hey there, news peelers. Today is May 26, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. This past weekend, on May 21, on Meet the Press, the NBC Sunday Morning Show with host Chuck Todd, Secretary Yellen noted that the United States has paid its bills on time since 1789. That's since 1789. So, after 234 years, would our nation default on its debt for the first time on her watch? And if so, how would she feel about that? My guest, Mr. John Hilsenrath, a senior correspondent of the Wall Street Journal, tells us exactly how she would feel about it. Here's a passage from his recent book. At home in Berkeley for a break in the summer of 2021, Yellen joked she might be the first U.S. Treasury Secretary to default on the debt and die of a heart attack. With respect to a potential default, 
this Wednesday, May 24, at the Wall Street Journal CEO Council Summit in London, Secretary Yellen participated virtually and stressed that she's all about preventing a default, adding that, quote, we're not involved in planning for what happens if there is a default. She also explained that prioritization is not really something that is operationally feasible. When it comes to our economy, there's a story that's not told enough, and that's the story of Janet Yellen, Ms. Yellen, later Dr. Yellen, later still Chair Yellen, and now Secretary Yellen. Mr. Hilsenrath tells that story in his book, titled Yellen, The Trailblazing Economist Who Navigated an Era of Upheaval, which we discuss in this episode. I should add that Mr. Hilsenrath is a fabulous storyteller, couching what otherwise could be dry discussions of economic concepts in the context of our culture, history, and personal American stories. And he uses simplified examples to explain complex ideas, like using oranges to teach about inflation. In his book, Mr. Hilsenrath introduces us to many sides of Janet Yellen. For example, he has an accounting joke as told by Dr. Yellen at a policy meeting of the Federal Reserve. On the left side of bank balance sheets, where their assets were recorded, nothing was right. On the right side of the bank balance sheets, where their access to funds were recorded, (laughs) nothing was left. I think that's really hilarious, particularly when you picture her saying it, with her prepared notes and her methodic way of speaking. As you well know, at the History Behind News podcast, we don't do biographies, and we don't do book reviews either. We uncover the history behind news. But this book, Mr. Hilsenrath's book, is not really a biography. It's really the story, the history of economics, economists, and the U.S. economy weaved along the seams of Janet Yellen's life. And discussing this book now is timely because Janet Yellen is at the helm. As our economy faces many challenges, inflation, bank failures, a looming recession, and a potential default. John Hilsenrath is a senior correspondent, editor, and writer of the Wall Street Journal, where he has written about economics and finance since 1997. And I chuckle here because I've been reading his reports since then. That's 26 years now. Mr. Hilsenrath has worked as a writer and editor in Hong Kong, New York, and Washington, D.C. Many of his stories have focused on causes and consequences of economic and financial crisis. He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist in 2014 for his coverage of the Federal Reserve and also part of a Wall Street Journal team that was a Pulitzer finalist in 2009 for coverage of the financial crisis. And he also contributed to underground reporting to the Wall Street Journal's 9-11 coverage, which won a Pulitzer in 2002. To learn more about Mr. Hilsenrath, you can click the link in the detailed caption of this episode where I have also provided an Amazon link to his latest book, Yellen. And here's a special shout-out to HarperCollins to thank the publisher for sending me a copy of this captivating book, which I read cover to cover and very much enjoyed. And by the way, in the opening trailer, I told you about how Janet Yellen argued for an inflation target of 2%, which was officially adopted when Bernanke was chair at the Fed. And Yellen was in charge of a communication team that formulated the Fed's mission statement about achieving a regular and predictable 2% inflation. I get that information and much more about inflation from Mr. Hilsenrath's book. So stay with me as Mr. Hilsenrath and I peel the history behind this news. Mr. Hilsenrath, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor uh, to to be with you today. Our economy is facing some big challenges now, like inflation and the debt ceiling. But instead of talking about those issues directly, I want to speak with you about Janet Yellen, who is our Secretary of Treasury, who obviously is very important to our economy and has been important for our economy for many years now. And lucky for me and our audience, you've recently written a book about her. It's sitting right next to me here on the shelf, and it's titled Yellen, the Trailblazing Economist Who Navigated an Era of Upheaval. Mm -hmm. So let's get into it. In the book, you write about Yellen's preparation. In fact, there's some language about compulsive 
yeah. preparation. Yeah, tell us about this. Well, um, so Janet Yellen uh, grew up uh, in, in Brooklyn, and um, she had a difficult mother. Um, her mother was very demanding, a uh, retired school teacher uh, who pushed Janet and her older brother, John, not only to have their schoolwork done every night, but to have it done properly. They were not allowed to- Properly. Right. They were not, especially their English. They were not allowed to turn in school assignments with mistakes. Um, And she made sure of that uh, the night before while they were doing their homework. Uh, Janet Yellen was also uh, a a woman uh, who chose to become- an economist in the 1960s at a time when very few women uh, were entering that field. Uh, She became an economics professor at a time when very few women were teaching in that field. Yeah, yeah. And um, it became really ingrained in her personality that uh, she had to have her work done, not only to prove herself to her mother, but also to prove herself to the other students in the class and to her professors and then to her colleagues. She you know, became really, as I say, compulsive about being sure that she was always the best prepared person. I think you even have a, a passage about how other graduate students then or maybe in, well into the future were using her notes in graduate yeah. school. Well, so she developed um, a... Uh, uh, the relationship of a mentee uh, with uh, Jim Tobin, the uh, yeah. professor at Yale, Nobel Prize winner. He took her under his wing and she became the graduate assistant in his class who was responsible for taking notes of his lectures and then uh, sharing those notes with other students. And her notes were so meticulous, uh, were so carefully prepared <laughs> Uh, They became known as the Yellen Notes, and they became really the roadmap for students, not only in her year, but for years succeeding. Literally, there are still people today who saved these notes as a map into Jim Tobin's brain. And if you look at the notes, it's not just the the meticulousness with which she described the economic concept, but, you know, there are drawings in there that look like architectural renderings of- I've seen illustrations in your book, yeah. Um, and, and even the headers of the pages of these notes were meticulously prepared because remember, this is in the days, uh, but before anything was digitized. So she had headers that, that stated, uh, the date, the page number, the lesson on every page. So if someone was to walk down the hall and drop all the notes, they could be reorganized in order. Uh, in which they were prepared. She, wow, that's 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 yeah. amazing. I'll make sure I'll never show my notes to uh, Secretary Yellen. Um, it, let's flip this uh, to the other side of this characteristic of being prepared. Does that slow her down in the fast-paced world of being the Secretary of Treasury? Does that slow down her decision? That's a that's a great question, um, and I think it's been a knock on her. In it has been the oh. past that when we are in these crisis moments, uh, you know, she has a tendency to say, "Well, wait a second. What about this? And what about that?" And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, okay. When the United States in uh, 2022 was preparing uh, sanctions sanctions packages against Russia after its invasion of yeah. Ukraine, yeah. the um, the kind of nuclear missile uh, in the armament was freezing Russian um, uh, reserves uh, held by the Federal Reserve, um, freezing the central bank, uh, the Russia central bank assets. And um, there was a desire among the Europeans to move very quickly after the invasion because uh, they were shocked that Putin had carried through with the invasion. And uh, there was a decision on a weekend uh, for a quick push uh, that the White House wanted to do. And Yellen said, well, wait a second, we need to consider the long run implications of this. You know, this could affect the standing of the dollar uh, in the global marketplace, which is our source of economic advantage. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have to think very carefully before we start freezing central bank assets. So she did tap the brakes in that case. It's laid out in the book on a Saturday of very intense negotiations. Uh, at one point, Mario Draghi uh, the prime minister of Italy calls her up and says, we have to do this. And they went ahead 
and did it. I think what Yellen has learned from experience is that, you know, sometimes events are moving fast and you've got to move fast too. And so I think she's um, grown and matured in, in this role as a leader in, in recognizing that sometimes the decision point is here and you have to act. The last thing I'll say is that, um, you know, being a treasury secretary is a much different job than being um, a federal reserve chair. The processes at the fed are very regimented. Uh, and um, there, there is an order in which things are typically done uh, that I think was her comfort zone. Uh, there's crisis management where you have to do some fast moving, as we saw in COVID. But, you know, her temperament is more to, to take things really methodically, but she's come to, to see in life that you can't always do that. So do you think as the Secretary of Treasury, she is comfortable now or is she compelled no, oh, I would she say does. she's both. I would say she's both. I, um, I'll tell you, when when I've had chances to speak with her uh, during her time as Treasury Secretary, I've been struck by how relaxed and comfortable she seemed in her own. Oh, state. nice. You know, in her her early days uh, as uh, after the financial crisis as Vice Chair of the Fed, uh, I think a lot of people um, inside the Fed had a, a sense that her, she sometimes had her hair on fire. She felt such a sense of urgency for the Fed to act to address high unemployment. Yeah. And I think when you, when people see her now, they say, all right, she's, um, uh, yeah, she, 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 she seems comfortable in her skin. And I think has learned a bit to laugh at herself for her mistakes, but you use the word compelled. And that certainly is what drove her into the job. She didn't want to do the job when the Biden's emissaries first reached out to her in 2020, uh, after the election, she said, no, she wasn't interested. She was enjoying her retirement. And uh, they, they came back a second time, uh, actually reaching out to her brother as a middleman and said, we really want you. The, you know, the economy <laughs> the mess. We need someone with stature and gravitas. Please consider this. And she sat in her uh, stood in her kitchen with her son, Robbie, and her son and her husband, George. And we really should talk about the two of them, because this book is really a love story involving that family as much as is about biography and an economic story. And they decided she had a duty. Uh, if the president asks you to serve, especially at a time of national crisis, she has a responsibility. And so, yes, she felt compelled uh, to, to take the job. And I'll come full circle. Um, you know, she was a straight A student. She got A's in every class she ever took, except German uh, in college at Brown. Um <laughs> Okay. Which also comes up in the book. Um, but she certainly sees the inflation that we're experiencing today as a black mark on her record. And I think that uh, she feels compelled to see that get under control before she decides it's time to walk off uh, into the sunset and resume her retirement. We'll be back after a short break to talk more about Janet Yellen. As you heard in the last segment, Secretary Yellen wanted to study the potential impacts on the US dollar before imposing sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. No doubt because she was concerned about the global strength of the US dollar. Of course, the US dollar's dominance is something that US Secretaries of Treasury, Janet Yellen's predecessors, were keenly aware of and in fact relied on. Here's an example. John B. Connolly, former Treasury Secretary, famously told his French counterpart at a summit, quote, the dollar is our currency, <laughs> but it's your problem. I discussed the history of the US dollar, including this anecdote with Dr. Barry Eichengreen of UC Berkeley in season two, episode 26. The link for my conversation with Dr. Eichengreen is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Mr. Hilsenrath. Mr. Hilsenrath, let's talk about another aspect of Secretary Yellen's personality. In your book, you describe a scene. <laughs> I'm sorry, I chuckled because it's really interesting. You describe a scene after a business dinner she had at the Fed. This is before she was a chair, by the way. She's in the parking garage after the dinner with her colleague. And this is what her colleague said about her. Quote, right. at one point, 
It almost looked like tears welled up in Yellen's eyes. She was just incredibly passionate and emotional about it, unquote. Yeah. For the record, Ms. Elizabeth, at this 2010 dinner, she got passionate and emotional as they were discussing the Fed's bond buying program. They were talking about, you know, yeah, quantitative easing. They were talking about some burning civil rights issues or like, right. you know, saving the children from gun violence or anything. Right. Yeah. This is really passionate. Tell me about this side of her. Well, program. I mean, that that goes back to the man we were talking about earlier, uh, Jim Tobin, uh, who was her mentor at Yale. And, and Tobin's view was that, you know, a, a lot of uh, young men and a few young women got into economics in the 1950s and 1960s, seeing it as this math driven um, social science that that uh, could be used to understand the, the world of economics. And Tobin's view was that there's a moral purpose to what they were doing with economics, that it wasn't just about the math, but there was a moral purpose to use the tools that they were developing, the mathematical tools, not just to understand the world, but to try to improve the human condition. Uh, let's not forget, economics was really driven after the Great Depression um, by the, the horrors that uh, were visited on millions of families by high unemployment and all the bad things that came with that. And Yellen took that Tobin's view of moral purpose to heart. And that really ha has driven her. And then so if you fast forward to the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, the economy goes into a very deep recession, double digit unemployment. And, you know, and Yellen, along with others like Ben Bernanke, thought that we're at the risk of going into another Great Depression. And her sense of moral purpose was really, truly ignited by that event. And she felt that these tools that the Fed had, purchasing government bonds to lower interest rates, were necessary to address the condition of high, of high unemployment. We can have a long conversation about whether those were the right tools and whether they've been applied properly during the crisis and since. Uh, but this is what drove her in that moment. Let's get into her moral purpose. This continues throughout your book. At one point when she is, I think, the chair, the per, um, pardon me, the president of the San Francisco Fed, there right. is a, uh, there's an incident in which she's pounding the the conference room table and yeah. quote, I'm using your words, actually her words saying, these are fucking people. Tell me about that. We could say that on your podcast. Okay. Now <laughs> I know. We don't, I won't hold myself back. Okay. Please, please have at it. So go ahead. What happened there? Well, again, this relates to people and numbers. Um, she was sitting in a meeting with, a, with, with staff economists and they were presenting her forecasts for the economic outlook after the financial crisis and presented her forecasts uh, for a long period of very high unemployment. And she felt complacency in the room. And she she banged the table <laughs> and she said, these are fucking people. These aren't numbers. This isn't good enough, what we're, what we're proposing. You know, the, the policies that we're pursuing, it's not enough. It's not good enough. And we have to figure out how to address this problem. These are not just numbers that are people. Talk about passion, right? Yeah. Unemployment. In your By the book, way, you know, we're talking ahead. all about how stiff and uh, and also how passionate she can be. Um, she, she, she also uh, can throw down um, a martini with the best of them. And uh, one of the things that's endeared her to some of her colleagues is we've, we've had some quirky personalities running the Fed in the past. Uh, Alan Greenspan uh, was a, a bit of a loner. Um, he used to write his speeches in the bathtub. Uh, ben Bernanke was a wow. very shy man. Yeah, yeah. Did, did not feel comfortable in social environments. Yellen is, uh, she has the moral purpose. She she has her compulsions about prep preparation, but she can also sit down after a hard discussion and laugh with you about, and this is one of the great gifts that I had was a chance to sit with her in a Chinese restaurant and at a kitchen table with her and her husband, George, and just listen to them tell funny stories about their lives. I love it. I'm so jealous that you got that just golden opportunity. Um, one of the things I like about your book is that, you know, 
us ordinary Americans are seeing the likes of, let's say, Mr. Bernanke, or in this case, Secretary Janet Yellen. And from our vantage point, they look so proper, especially Ms. Yellen and Bernanke. But when you read your book, it really gives dimension. She uses the, you know, she throws the F-bomb here and there. She's drinking martinis and she's having just a lot of interesting things that I would have not thought that about a person of her externally sort of manifested character. I, I, you know, I'll tell you, when you start talking economics with her, she could give you these answers that kind of make, make your head drop. They're, they're so deeply ingrained, but my, my, my own personal experiences kind of shaped the way I wrote the book. I took one economics course in college, uh, an introduction to economics course. And there were um, two problems with the class. The first problem was that it met at eight o'clock in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Some of the best parties on campus in those days in the (laughs) 80s were Wednesday night. And so I slept through an awful lot of classes. Um, and yet you still wrote this book. I love well, it. Well, but but I'm going to- You I'm said there are two problems. And explain that. Yeah. The other problem was the way this was taught in school was so full of abstractions, uh, not just the math. I was pretty good at math, but the abstractions around the math. And none of it was relatable to me. And I actually, there was the only economics course I took. I, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a war correspondent. And- I kind of ended up writing about economics accidentally. I needed uh, a, a job after traveling after college, and I got a job uh, writing about economic statistics released by the Labor Department um, regularly. Numbers, there were real people, and there were really interesting characters, uh, people like Alan Greenspan. And what I wanted to do was write a book that explained economics um in, ter- in terms that even I could have appreciated as a high school undergraduate and showed you the people underneath it. Because at the end of the day, economics itself, and this is what the, the field has wrestled with for 30 years, economics itself is not math. It's about people. It's about yeah. human behavior and interaction. And I wanted to show that, but also in part by showing who are these people who are underneath the field and what are they like uh, behind closed doors? And for the record, your book does that. You talk about Samuelson and many other uh, important uh, players in our uh, economy in the last 50 years. Um, we're talking about people. Well, Paul Samuelson, by the way, wasn't always a very nice guy. He was he embarrassed <laughs> his nephew, uh, Larry Summers, at a staff meeting uh, sometime, I guess it was in the 1980s, uh, by calling him out. But Larry Sam- Summers being the Samuelson former. Had, Samuelson had quite a sharp tongue. Uh, he also was a very disorganized lecturer, but I digress. Um, and and Larry Summers being our former Secretary of Treasury, right? Yes. Oh yes. wow. And the former president of Harvard University. Oh wow. Um, so let's go back to the people. Um, there's just there's also this theme it starts early in your book. Uh, this is when Miss um, Janet Yellen is now Doctor Janet Yellen, and she has this thing about. Interest actually goes back before that, even to her home kitchen as a child, work and employment. And it yeah. develops when she becomes, uh, she gets her doctorate and she meets her husband, Dr. Akerloff. Yeah. They say, we're going to fix the unemployment issue. And, right. you know, I'm reading along your book and I just pause. I'm like, who talks like that? Who has yeah. that sort of vision? I'm going to fix hunger, poverty or whatever. Yeah. It, it, the, that's just extraordinary. And yeah. I've read so many books. This is, is she really like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when she and George and their son, Robbie traveled to the South of France after she left the fed for vacation, uh, they spent every morning. This is after she was done with the fed, uh, working on research, um, that, on know, vacation. Their, their dinner tables, really conversations really are about, economics and moral purpose. And it goes back to their childhoods. You know, so many of our own personal stories go back to our childhood. So, you know, Ye- Yellen's mother was this very demanding mother. Her 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 father was a medical doctor in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, they came of age uh, after the Great Depression. And they would tell stories at the dinner table about the suffering people experienced. And her father told stories at the dinner table about his patients. And about the problems 
that they brought that that patients brought home when they lost jobs about the chaos it caused in marriages, uh, the mm -hmm. destruction it caused to families, uh, the problems it caused in creating substance abuse. So, you know, Yellen grew up kind of understanding that unemployment was, you know, this is again after the Great Depression. It was a terrible problem. Uh, she meets George Akerlof, uh, who she would marry in the fall of 1978. Akerlof, as a child, uh, was the was the son of um, a chemist uh, who couldn't hold a job down. He was a brilliant man, but he kept moving <laughs> from one job to another. And one day, George says to himself, uh, he's maybe 10 or 11 years old, and he says, now, wait a second. If my father loses his job and can't spend money, and then he can't go to the baker and doesn't buy bread from the baker, then the baker is going to lose money and he'll lose his job. And then the shoemaker won't be able to sell shoes to the baker and he'll lose his job. And this Wait, he told you this story? He told they? you this? He told you this? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's I should say George Akerlof went on to win a Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. But he was obsessed with the problem of unemployment. And so he and Janet Yellen met at the Fed and uh, were immediately drawn to each other uh, by a number of things. Uh, among them was, was this desire, if nothing else, to examine unemployment and what could be done about it. I just want to add that they made these statements to themselves, you know, in their late 20s or perhaps early 30s. I don't remember the time frame, but they made these statements at a time when they were professors they were not policymakers they were not billionaires they were not you know secretary of the treasury or anything so i think that sort of vision that desire i guess it goes back to passion is is real for her when it comes to economics well, you, you you might you you know let's not forget we're talking about economists right so you might also call it arrogance because there are quite a number of economists ah i you know i'm not calling they're, they're actually both exceptionally humble people yeah. But speaking more broadly about the economics profession, I think there was uh, a, a degree of hubris that dominated this field for decades. Uh, this idea that they had kind of developed these mathematical tools and designed an economic system that they could under, understand and manage um, with, uh, with with um, with 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 great effectiveness and. Really, the the entire second half of my book uh, is is about what went wrong. Yeah, um, yeah. With, with with these efforts to manage and navigate. So, uh, by arrogance, you're re really referring to sort of that self confidence belief that just like an MD, a doctor, we can fix it. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, for people like Yellen and Akerlof, for many others, it's actually arrogance. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll be back after a short break to talk about uh, Janet Yellen and her desire to do good. Mr. Hilsenrath, early on in your book, you describe uh, Ms. Yellen's do-gooder ethos. And I say Ms. Yellen because this is when she was younger, before she got her doctorate. I thought this was pretty cool, obviously. I mean, wanting to do good. Everyone likes that, right? Yeah. But then this desire to do good is something that like it repeats in your book and it continues to the very end. I'll read you this passage. Quote, some readers might not agree with Yellen's political views or economic prescriptions, but it's hard not to be impressed that decency, honesty, and a sense of duty got her somewhere at a time and in a town where those traits seem in increasingly short supply, end quote. So what does this tell us about Yellen in her role as the Treasury Secretary? Yeah. Wow, there's so much to unpack in that line, and I really appreciate you picking up on it. Um, well, first of all, uh, what we learn from studying economics is that, um, it, it, as in as is the case in many choices in life, there are trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what we've discovered during this latest period, where Yellen uh, and now the Fed are battling not unemployment but inflation, is there are trade-offs, 
with the policies um, that she has chosen and that the Federal Reserve chose to respond to the COVID crisis of 2020. So, you know, it's one thing to want to do good, um, but it's it's also important to do the right thing and to make reasoned choices. It's a very hard thing to do, frankly, in Washington, where politics colors so much action and decision. I bet. So, you know, I mean, I, I want to be fair in sizing her up. And I think she did a lot of remarkable things in her career. Uh, the inflation that we've experienced in the last couple of years is not going to go down as one of her greater moments. And, you know, people have asked me, and this is why I put that sentence in there. Well, what's her legacy? What's her legacy? Um, and to me, thinking about it, you can go look at, you know, what the Fed did during the financial crisis and have a debate about that. You could look about what they did after COVID and have a debate about that. And really what jumped out at me is just that, you know, this town, when I say this town, I mean, Washington um, is so divisive. And, and and this is critical. There's so little trust. There's so little trust um, in, in the institutions, not just of government, of government, but of American governance. And by that, I mean, not just the government, but also the media, uh, the courts, the banks, you name it, anyone in a power center. And I, I think that any person in a in a, a position of the elites, that includes me as a journalist, needs to be thinking really carefully, what do I have to do to earn back the trust of the American people? Because that trust has diminished. And so what I walked away with thinking about her life was that, all right, you know, here's someone who she was trying to do the right thing. Uh, and she wasn't, you know, trying to climb uh, any kind of ladder or decorate her resume. Um, she was trying, you know, and she made mistakes. She absolutely made mistakes, but she was trying to do things for good reasons and with decent intentions. And frankly, I think that might matter more than anything else, uh, given the level of distrust we see in American society right now. When you talk about her desire to do good, both here and also in your book, and there's some passion that's coming, I, I, I sense from you. Hmm. So I have two follow-up questions. One, this is not a case where you fell in love with your subject, is it? Well, I try very hard um, to be not uh, not to do that in in, in any cases. I I, I tried what what I. <laughs> All right. So you're right. I feel passionate about this. What I fell in love with in 26 years at the Wall Street Journal was a value system of how I conduct myself as a journalist. And that value system goes something like this, that my responsibility is to get my readers closer to the truth. And to do that uh, without being for or against uh, any person or any ideology or any side, uh, with an air of neutrality and and decency and civility with how I treat people. And I I say this in the author's note at the back, that's how I tried to go about doing this book. So um, I think she and I were both careful um, to not, you know, I don't think we wanted to get too close to each other. Um, I think we respected her, you know, she respected that, I, I didn't ask her for permission to do the book. You know, she agreed to have conversations with me. Um, so uh, I, I try not to fall uh, in love with her because my first love was living by the value system that I learned at the Wall Street Journal. I have to admit, I have to say, you know, uh, I, I respect and admire her. And I also have to say, I had a lot of fun talking to her husband. I spent a lot of time talking to George Akerlof. And he's a really interesting and amusing individual. Um, I tried not to fall in love with him or their or their son, Robbie, either. But I just try to I try to treat people de de with, with some de decency and sense of civility. You know, I'm going to go on another tangent. But when I was covering the Fed, sometimes people would give us a hard time, the Fed reporters, because they're like, you know, they would have these press conferences and they're like, you know, people would complain. They're like, you're not hard enough on these people. You need to stand up and grab the microphone and 
point at them and yell at them the way uh, who Sam Donaldson used to yell at the president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my own view is like, that's just, that's not the way I do journalism. You can ask hard questions without being a jerk. And you can, you know, my job is to elicit information and you can get information sometimes by asking people very polite questions and they don't might not even recognize the trap you're walking them into. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's important to treat people with civility uh, and, and to conduct myself in, in, in a neutral way. So I, I hope I didn't go too easy on her. Um, as I told you when, when, when we got on this call uh, before we started uh, the podcast, uh, I told you that I've been following you for many, many years. And I know you've interviewed many important people in economy and politics. So let's go back to Secretary Yellen's desire to do good. Did that stand out for you? Is 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 she above and beyond others that you've met in the last 26 years? And you don't have to name any names. It's just, it seems like it because it's it's important in your book. It, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, if, if you go back and look at someone like Milton Friedman. Yeah. Uh, whose views were the opposite of Janet Yellen's. He was a free market guy. He believed very strongly that the government should stay out of uh, personal business. Uh, and Jim Tobin, who was very much a Keynesian, who believed the government had a role to play in people's business. And if you look back at how they talked about why they got into economics, they had the same reason. They wanted to do some social good. They just had different views about how to get there. So, I won't say that Janet Yellen's desire to do good stood out. I think that that was an ethos that was very much a part of the economics profession, smart people who could do math, who wanted to do some social good. Um, I'll tell you why I wrote the book. Uh, it occurred to me when she became Treasury Secretary that, you know, here is a, an individual who had a... Um, a, life, a record that was that really stood out. She was the first person in American history who had been the Treasury Secretary, the Fed Chair, and the Chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. She was a central player uh, in American economic policymaking for more than a quarter century. Yeah. What I saw in her was an opportunity to use her, you know, so it looks like a biography, but really I saw in her an opportunity to use her as the central character to telling a much bigger story, not just about Janet Yellen, but about modern American economic history. Yeah. And, you know, who were the people and uh, what were the debates, debates and developments that got this country to the place that we're in right here and right now? So, you know, when you see her face on that cover, she is the central character, but the story is an American story. It's a story of the American economy and the experiences that the people had at the helm of the ship trying to navigate this very confusing tides um, when they disagreed about which way the tides were shifting and which way and how the ship worked. Yeah. And that's really what I set out to do. In your book, you also talk about her, her interest in fairness. This comes up several times. There's this uh, really just funny story about how they're uh, grading exams in London and she kicks off <laughs> Akerlof out of the car because she's all about efficiency and she's interested yeah. in fairness. Um, and and I'm just um, let's fast forward to her as the secretary of the treasury uh, is fairness kind of like goes into also correlates with wanting to do good but is fairness something that is forefront now she sits in the cabinet she's a politic yeah. well she's not a politician but she's in the center of politics now it's really hard to be fair uh it, it's especially hard you know so uh i she and george spent a lot of time talking about what's the right thing to do and that's why she took the job of treasury secretary in the first place so but i think again what what she's recognized over her career is that they're you know, we have to make trade-offs uh, um, as individuals uh, and policymakers also have to make trade-offs. You know, and she's had a lot of fights with politicians in her own party uh, about what's the right thing to do. The debt ceiling is a great example of it. Um, you know, she has seen, going back to 2021, 
that the the debt ceiling crisis that we're now running up against what had the potential to cause another financial crisis and another uh, catastrophe. And she worked very hard behind the scenes uh, at the Treasury and the White House to try to resolve this problem before we we got to that moment where the U.S. might default. Uh, and there were political calculations in the White House itself that went another way, that went the way of, well, wait a second, we could use this issue to bludgeon Republicans for being irresponsible. Are, we, are you talking about now or 2011, Obama administration? You're talking about this I'm year. I'm talking about now. Yeah. Okay. I'm following. Yeah. In, in, in 2021, there was... Uh, it, we had some brush ups with the debt ceiling and mm-hmm. she just wanted to get get the problem resolved. You know, and there are people in the White House who saw it as a political opportunity to show to demonstrate how irresponsible they believe Republicans were. Um, and, you know, her view was just like, let's just get out of a crisis. So, you know, one, one's view of what's right and what's fair in a town like Washington can get very complicated very fast. Sure can. With respect to the debt ceiling crisis, let me read you this from your book. Quote, at home in Berkeley for a break in the summer of 2021, Yellen joked she might be the first U.S. Treasury Secretary to default on the debt and die of a heart attack. Then she went back to work, unquote. I I, I love that. It's so telling about sort of the gravity of this issue for her that it may yeah. really be a- well but not only that but i mean what what i loved about that comment was uh what was just the 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 fact that she has learned over time to laugh at herself and to kind of give herself a break of saying all right you you know you got to work your rear end off do the best you can but you know at, at the end history is going to tell itself yeah and um and i think she's learned over time perhaps not to take herself too seriously. But that meeting that I had with her out in Berkeley was in August of 2021. So like, you know, so that gives you, she's been worried about this moment uh, for two years now. Wow. Wringing her hands about this. And uh, she really wanted to avert it. And the political forces in Washington are driving her right into it. And it might be the case that she ends up bearing the blame for something that she spent two years trying to avoid. Yeah, that would be unfortunate. Uh, Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Mr. Hilsenrath as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Mr. Hilsenrath, in the last three segments, I didn't ask you about uh, Secretary Yellen's husband, Dr. Akerlof, and also you mentioned her son. Mm-hmm. Um, as I read your book, it's obvious that economics, and this just blows my mind, is discussed at the kitchen table. I mean, you know, you said that in the in a prior segment, but I've also read this. There's several junctures in your book that this comes out. So he must have had and continue to have some sort of influence on her. And I don't mean her as in as that she's a woman and he's a man. That's just stupid. That's silly. That's not what I mean. Mm. Dr. Akerlof is a Nobel laureate in yeah. economics, and their son has a doctorate in economics. So these yeah. guys talk shop at home. All the time, all the time. All so, the time. Much- and and I I think it's it, it, what what's important to say is that they they had an impact on each other. Okay, um, you know, the, George Akerlof's mind is much different than Janet Yellen's mind. Uh, Janet Yellen is a person who literally tried to write a textbook uh, with her mentor Jim Tobin. George Akerlof wanted to tear the textbooks apart. Uh, George. Oh is a subversive and his son Robbie is a subversive and their mentality has been, you know, for their professional lives to poke holes in the way economists think about economics. They're trying to rewrite the fundamentals of economics. And so George would throw out these crazy ideas to Janet and Janet was the one who this George used to always joke to me that, you know, I always knew, you know, I'd give Janet some idea 
And, you know, you know, usually she could find the 10 holes in it. And if she could only find two <laughs> holes, I knew I was onto something. I love you know, it. Like not only did George have an important influence on Janet, but she had a critically important influence on him and his work and the work that helped to get him a Nobel prize. She was the person who gave order and structure to a highly creative mind. Um, and at the same time, George and Robbie, Robbie, since he was a little boy, were constantly challenging the conventional views that Janet might have been playing with. There's a great example of this in the book where Janet is the regulator at the San Francisco Fed of Countrywide Financial, uh, run by Angela Mazzillo, uh, who's making really reckless mortgage loans in the, in the 2000s. And George and Robbie are looking at this guy and reading stories about him. And he is one of these people who dresses in these like really fancy double-breasted suits with you know, gold, flamboyant. you know, he was a bright and shiny guy. And George and Robbie had an argument with um, with Janet driving out one time to Napa Valley. They're like, something's not right about this guy. There's something wrong with the <laughs> culture of the of the of countrywide that he's precipitating. It's reckless and dangerous. And and yeah, and Janet yells back at him. She's like, what do you think I'm going to do? Like, like kick him out because he wears gold cufflinks. Like that's not my, I'm not allowed to do things that way, but they were onto something. And so like, this is the way that the family kind of conducted itself is they, they, they really, uh, this is how they, they spent their drives to, to Napa Valley and their lunches and their dinners is talking about these things that they're passionate about, but they could also, you know, ha have a laugh and joke about, for instance, this time Janet kicked George out of their car because he disagreed with her about how to grade papers. I love that uh, little story. She literally there. made him get out and walk. This is the London story that you're talking yes, about. Yes, and she yeah. was the driver. <laughs> so um, do they still talk about these things now that she's the Secretary of the Treasury? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. this is their life. This is the way uh, this, this, this is the way they've lived. And you know, I spent a lot of time talking to George, especially early in my reporting, because she was just getting started at the Treasury. And I didn't want to get in the middle of that. I thought I'd get to know him first. And I could always tell when he, you know, I would touch some button and he'd be like, I, I better not talk about that. <laughs> uh, you know, he there, he clearly had gotten instructions from Janet that, was, that there were certain things that were not his domain to discuss yeah. with And that if, yeah. I, if anyone was going to talk about him, it was going to be her. Do you see any influence uh, from Robbie or George, both of whom are, have doctors in economics and, and a Nobel Prize, by the way? Um, do you see any influence from them on Secretary Yellen's policies now? That's probably a it's difficult a, question, too. It's a really good question, and it's a difficult question, because as I said, George and Robbie are subversives. They're yeah, trying yeah. to tear down the way people think about economics. And Yellen is an institutionalist. She's exactly. run the institutions for decades. And so um, certainly I think, you know, during going up to the financial crisis, they played a big role in kind of helping to open her eyes to the gravity uh, of what was happening. Uh, and I think they do help to shape her thoughts about kind of ha how economic events are unfolding and how to respond to them. But at the end of the day, Janet Yellen is a woman who's very comfortable in her own two shoes and she's going to make her own calls. And so obviously she listens very carefully to them. Um, but I, I don't have any doubt that it's Janet Yellen making the decision. Yeah. No, I'm sure of that too. All I was sort of reaching for is trying to figure out if you've seen any policies or statements from her that are quote unquote unorthodox or unconventional. And you sort of chuckle and say, oh, that's George right there. No, because her her filter is is to is is to formalize everything yeah. and turn it in, and 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 to use a methodology. You might take an unconventional idea, but use a methodology to check that it's right. So you know the Fed did a lot of very unconventional things during the financial crisis of two and after two thousand eight with low interest rate policies and bond purchase programs. And I'm certain that George was very supportive of that. But it would have been Yellen's instinct to say, "All right, okay." 
interesting idea. Let's do our homework and make sure that we've we've done that right. But the last which goes back to our preparedness, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I will say that in terms of moral purpose, they're very much on the same page, and um, and his thoughts and and his sense of the importance of managing unemployment is is, is central not only to his way of thinking but but to hers and. The lesson that I think they've learned this time around is that there are still trade-offs that you have to consider, and we're living through the the trade-offs right now of inflation. Um, My last point that I wanted uh, to get you to talk about is this. Yellen is the first female Secretary of Treasury, the first female Fed chair, the first female chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. And I believe the only person to hold all three positions. Right. Yet when I read your book, there are passages in which, uh, uh, I forget the exact uh, sort of uh, details, but for the Harvard club, she had to take the back stairs or something like that. And she wasn't sitting with the faculty. She was in a different part of Harvard University. And she made a joke, something to the effect that if I die here, no one would know for for days because she was so alone. Right. Yeah. So just, you know, I got a, I'm I'm a girl dad. I have a daughter. So yeah. Tell me about how this happened. How how did how does she make it in this town, economics and then politics and all that? Where yeah. in many instances she was the only woman. Yeah. Well, so let me let me say three things about this. Uh, first of all, I think it's um, actually profound that we've had this long conversation, and this the the fact of her being a woman holding these jobs has only come up at the end because I think it demonstrates how far not only she came, but how far she helped to take the economics profession and 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 women in the workplace over the course of her lifetime yeah. to the. To, to the point that that wasn't the most remarkable thing that we have to talk about, that all these other things were even more remarkable. That's one thing I want to say. Yeah. The other thing I want to say is I'm disappointed that you didn't mention my one of my favorite anecdotes from the book. Oh, is that when she first got to Harvard, uh, the, the only swimming pool on campus was <laughs> men's only. And they swam that's, naked in the thing. This that's is the right. 1970s. I mean, can you imagine if your daughter heard this today that the yeah. only pool at Harvard was men's only and the men swam naked? And it's you know, the 1970s is us, not that far back, really. To us, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. But so, but but you're right. I mean, there were a great many obstacles. Uh it to me reporting this book out, uh, it was really eye-opening to me to come to see uh, up close through the experiences of what, of this one individual, just how lopsided uh, this one profession could be um, and, and how unwelcoming it could be uh, and how many strides it's made uh, o- over time. You know, th- and that's why that anecdote about the pool jumps out at me is it's like things were happening then that would just kind of be unthinkable right now. When George no, right? Married, yeah. married at the Cosmos Club in Washington, it was a men's only club. Uh, and at the entrance, you know, women weren't allowed to walk in the main entrance of the club where they ended up getting married. And there's some reasons That's why crazy. they were doing that. But yeah, I mean, she has had uh, a profound journey really with respect to what she had to overcome. And so then the question is, how did she overcome it? And here, I think there's two really important points to make. And and this is where I try to be even handed. On the one hand, you know, it was her commitment. It was her moral purpose. It was her determination to be prepared uh, and to be the best prepared person in the room that helped to get her to these places. But it's also the case that uh, there was a concerted effort over all of these years to push women into higher places that when Bill Clinton became president, he wanted a woman yeah. to run the council of economic advisors. And the first woman who did it was Laura Tyson who preceded Yellen. And, and then it was Yellen and uh, there was, you know, and Barack Obama saw the wisdom or the merit, I should say, of having a woman run the federal reserve. But at this, there's tension here because, you know, so Yellen did get uh 
um, uh, help along the way. But at the same time, she walked into a White House that she described as being like a men's locker room. It wasn't welcoming. It was crude uh, and and not very nice to women. And by the way, many, many academic seminar rooms are the same way. And so there's like the, the, this really interesting tension between our desire as a society to, e to equalize the balance and give everyone equal footing, but also the challenges people face when they get in a seat at the table, the challenges they face once they're there at the table and yeah. having to demonstrate and prove themselves. And she, she she's experienced all of those conflicts. Uh, I think as a result, I, I think she feels um, lucky and blessed to have done everything that she did with her career. Uh, to have gotten a, as far as she did. And she, I think she would probably tell you that a lot of important people, including a lot of important men, helped her a great deal along the way. Yeah, a stellar career um, started with a lot of accomplishments. Um, in closing, if you wanted to tell our audience just one thing about Janet Yellen, after everything we've talked about, just one thing, what would it be? Oh, boy. Uh, well, now you've put me on the spot. I, have an answer. <laughs> I had an answer to, to every question that you told. I'll tell you, well, now I'm going to come back to something we talked about earlier. Um, you know, I could tell stories all day, but just reflecting on where our country is right now and, and how I conclude the book, I think our country is in a dangerous place because, you know, the, the, the book that I wrote, I, I say in the end is about two marriages. It's a, it's about the marriage between Janet Yellen and George Akerlof. And it's also about the marriage between a democratic government and a free market system. Uh, and we look at places like Russia and China today, and we see that the alternatives to this system of governance that we have are not good. Yeah. Um, but the system that we have doesn't come naturally or easily. Economics, capitalist markets, and democratic government are flawed systems for a variety of reasons. And what you need to make the systems run properly, and the founders of the United States understood this, are institutions that can make these two imperfect systems work well together. Uh, institutions like a free media, uh, like a fair court system, uh, like a system of laws. And you need people to trust the institutions. And I think that we live in a dangerous place because over the last 30 or 40 years, people have come to distrust American institutions for a variety of reasons. The, 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 the phrase economic upheaval is in the subtitle of the book very purposefully because we've yeah. lived through an era of upheaval. And one of the consequences of that upheaval is distrust. And I think what matters most to her is that she tried to do her job uh, with a sense of civility and purpose that I think um, the whole nation can learn from, uh, particularly the elites of this country. You know, whether you're a banker or a journalist or a CEO or a congressman trying to become a senator, um, talk about your value system believe in it and live by it. And I think that's what she did. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Hilsenrath, thank you very much. I really enjoyed reading your book and thank you for sharing it with our audience, telling us about Janet Yellen and also telling us about uh, the U.S. economy and its history. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience.
Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.